Christ's followers are called to more than just church attendance. The expectation is that we each become involved in the life or growth of the church body. In Romans chapter 12, we are reminded that we are all parts of the same body and that we belong to one another. There are definite responsibilities that result from this belonging or shared ownership. There is a place for every one of us within this church body and a need for each one of us to do our part. Whether a first time guest, a regular attender, or a long time member, we have each been given gifts by God that we can use to help this church grow and reach our community, our nation, and our world with the good news of Jesus Christ. Take the next step with us on this journey as we connect everyone everywhere to Him. Join us in Extreme Ownership. Well, hey, I'm so glad to be with you today, even though we missed out on about an hour of sleep. Anybody missing that hour about right now? Yeah? All right. Uh, one of our staff members told me this past week, he doesn't drink coffee before coming to church because coffee keeps him awake during the sermon. So maybe you feel like that right now. Uh, Hey, I want to give a big shout out to those of you who are tuning in right now on Facebook Live uh, and those of you who are worshiping with us at Crossroads West this morning. We're glad you're with us. This is a big weekend for us as a church for, for those at Crossroads West because six months ago on this weekend, we launched this campus and God has done some incredible things through uh, that campus and we love what God is doing out there. And so can we just give everybody at Crossroads West a hand? <clears throat> Beginning Easter weekend, we are starting a third service. We've had two services there so far. We are starting a third service because we are out of room at the facility and uh, we want to reach more and more people. And so thanks to those of you who have owned this mission, who have owned this campus, we couldn't have done it uh, without you. And so if you have volunteered at Crossroads West, let, let's give them a hand, okay? <clears throat> Well, some of you know that I was born and raised over in Louisville, Kentucky. My dad's side of the family is Cuban, and my mom's side of the family is German. And uh, I was the youngest of five kids growing up, and life was always a little bit crazy and chaotic. Well, my mom was one of 10 kids growing up. And uh, when she was 12 years old, believe it or not, her dad passed away, which automatically overnight made her mom a widow tasked with the responsibility to raise 10 kids all by herself. And several years ago, I asked my mom, how in the world did, did grandma do that? How in the world did your mom do it, raising all those kids, not having a lot of money? I mean, how, how did you guys survive? And I'll never forget what my mom said. She, she quickly answered my question. She said, well, to tell you the truth, whenever daddy passed away, all of us older siblings, it was just an expectation to contribute. We, we were required to, to serve, to help out in whatever way. We, we had to take responsibility in ways that maybe we never had before. You see, when, when my grandfather passed away, overnight pr priorities changed. So, so let me just translate for you what my mom said. She said, from, from that moment on, we all, we all were in it together. Your struggle was my struggle. We had each other's backs. We can no longer just depend on mom to, to make every meal, to do every ounce of laundry, to do every, every, wash every dish. No, we had to step up and do some of those things because when, when we had that moment, when things changed forever, when dad passed away, we had to take responsibility that there really wasn't any other option. 
Now, I think in a way that, that whenever Jesus came up with this idea of his community called the church, that, that that's a little bit of what he had in mind. Sometimes in the Bible, you'll hear the church referred to as, as a family. We're, we're brothers and sisters. But, but what does that really mean? You ever wondered that? I mean, what, what does it look like to not just attend a church, but, but really to belong to a church? Well, for the next three weeks, we're gonna be looking at what it means to be a part of this family called the church and, and what it looks like for us as brothers and sisters to own this mission that Jesus left with us before going back up to heaven. Now, you need to know that the title of this series has been taken from the, new, um, the number one New York Times bestseller book, Extreme Ownership, How U.S. Navy Seals Lead and Win. This book has been written by two Navy Seals that uh, were uh, commanders, officers over in Iraq and and this book is all about how to lead a team, how to build a team that can withstand the stress and, and the miscommunication that can sometimes happen in combat. You see, when Jesus first envisioned his church, he, he said it like this, okay? He, he's walking with some of his closest friends and he said, I will build my church, okay? I will build it and, and not even the gates of hell shall prevail against it. Now, this is really interesting because when you think about what gates are, that they are defensive mechanisms, right? That they, they protect, they, they don't really move, but, but they keep things out. But on the contrary, Jesus said that this church, this movement that I'm gonna begin is gonna go on the, the offensive. It's a movement, it has to be put in motion. And you see, the, the church was never designed to, to just play defense. The church was never designed to, to lead out of fear. Jesus didn't say, I, I will build my church and, and then my followers will isolate themselves from culture out of fear. No, he didn't, he didn't say that. Or Jesus didn't say, you know, I'll build my church and then all my followers are, are going to be known in culture for what they are against. They're going to picket funerals. They're going to hold up signs for saying, you know, I hate this. I hate that. No, no G Jesus didn't say that. And you see, we are never at our best when, when we feel like we have to maintain this posture of going on the defensive, of, of defending ourselves. That, that, that's not what we have been called to do. We have been called to move, to go on the offensive and, and to lead out of faith and, and not to be held back by fear. And so, so what does this really look like for us to own this mission together as we go on the offensive? And so that's what we're going to be looking at in this series. If you have your Bibles or Bible app, I want you to go ahead and turn to the book of Romans. Romans can be found towards the back of your Bibles in between the books of Acts and 1 Corinthians. If you don't own a Bible or didn't bring one with you, there should be one uh, right below your seat or right in front of you, okay? And uh, words will be up on the screen. We're, we're for this whole entire series, we're going to be in chapter 12, looking at um, what these verses uh, say about extreme ownership in the local church. All right, now you need to understand, as you're turning, there that, that a guy by the name of Paul wrote this letter about 2,000 years ago. And, and for the first 11 chapters in this book, he talked about <clears throat> how our creator God created this world that was intended to be perfect. He, he first created this universe that was absent of any kind of pain, suffering, injustice, racism, and, and Duke fans, okay? It's for you Cats fans out there, all right? I love you. There you go. Believe it or not, I do. Uh, then sin entered the world, okay? And that messed everything up. That threw everything off balance. But then Paul reminds us that, hey, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, God paid this penalty that, that we owe because of sin in our life. 
And so Paul gets to chapter 12 and he says, hey, look, taking all of that into consideration, as you come together as the family of God, here's some of the practical implications. Check out verse one of chapter 12. Paul says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. He says, "Don't, don't conform, don't go on the defensive any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, let's pause right here for a moment. That, that phrase, living sacrifice, um, is really significant. Many of the men and women that Paul was writing to who had converted from Judaism, th- this would have been a key phrase that they would have honed in on. Right? They were taught at an early age that there is this debt of, of sin. It creates this legal debt between our holy creator and, and us. And, and so the only way that the Jewish people were taught to receive forgiveness that was really temporary was through animal sacrifice, through the shedding of of animal blood. You see, this is how God prepared his people for hundreds and hundreds of years to long for something better, to long for a more sufficient uh, solution. All right, my wife and I were recently out on a date. As we were driving down the road, I looked at my instrument panel and my oil warning light was on. So I immediately pulled off to a gas station, checked the oil. I was a little bit low, so I put more oil in it. Uh, the light was off. Everything was solved from that point on. Now, let me ask you something. When that light went off, did, did, did the oil warning light in my instrument panel, did, did that fix the solution? Right, did, did, did that light, did, did it give my car what it needed in that moment? No. If anything, it, it just told me what was needed. It, it told me that, that my car had a need, it, but it couldn't provide the solution itself. It, it simply made me aware that, that there is a need before me. And you see, in a, in a similar kind of way, that that's what the Jewish sacrificial system was all about. It was like a warning light on the instrument panel for the Jewish people. It, it exposed their need. It, it warned them of, hey, if, if you keep going this direction, then, then your life is ultimately gonna end up like this. But you see, God put this a part of their faith, a part of their tradition, because he wanted them to pull over and, and long for something better and to, to create this better, more sufficient solution, this better sacrifice. Now, the term living sacrifice is really an oxymoron, okay? You wouldn't put those two words together. It'd be the equivalent of jumbo shrimp to us today or maybe happy camper, okay? You know what I'm talking about? In the ancient world, living and sacrifice, those two just didn't go together. Why? Because you always equated sacrifice with death. And and if you are alive, you you wouldn't willingly put yourself up on an altar knowing that you're gonna be sacrificed. I mean, who, who in the world would do that in their right mind? And yet Paul said that the living sacrifice, that that is our motivation, that that is, that is why we are called to take extreme ownership for one another because we all have this in common. We had this debt, but then Jesus, he wasn't a victim. Jesus wasn't a martyr. He didn't lose control. He wasn't just, you know, the, the innocent victim of a circumstance. No, he was alive, knew very well what he was doing, and he made himself our sufficient sacrifice to give us what we needed most, and that is forgiveness of sin to connect us back to God. That is our motivation, Paul says. One guy by the name of uh, G.K. Chesterton said it like this, the true soldier fights not because he hates what is in front of him, 
but because he loves what is behind him. And that's the essence of, of extreme ownership. And so the more we take ownership and we re- embrace responsibility uh, in the Crossroads family here, the more we'll understand the love that, that Jesus has for us. Paul gets a little bit more practical with this. Check out verse three. He says, for, the, for by the grace given, me, I, given to me, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, right? So in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. All right, the truth is this. You can't separate Jesus from the church. They're one and the same, okay? As some of us are thinking right now, that may be true, but man, I don't wanna to belong to some Christians that I know. I, don't, I really don't wanna claim them to be part of my family. They're kinda of like my in-laws, right? I mean, I come up with excuse after excuse to avoid them. Do you know what I'm talking about? I mean, the church is, is a messy, dysfunctional place. And you know what? It has always been that way. The very first church was led by some of Jesus' closest friends. And when we look in the Bible and we read about the state of the church back then, it was chaotic. It, it, was, it was a mess. And, and you know what? As long as people like you and me are a part of the church, the church will never be perfect. It, it just won't. And so our first reaction is maybe to run from people that disappoint us, is is to avoid people that that demand a lot out of us, right? It can be shocking sometimes to observe the the hypocrisy and and sin from people who claim to follow after Jesus. But for some reason, okay, taking ownership of your church is the path to which God has given each of us to grow more fully into our identity as children of God. You see, our ownership is tested when we're challenged in some way. Our church has gone through a whole lot of change and transition within the past few years. And for those of us who have been a part of our church for a long time and you're still here, I want you to know we are so glad that you are here. We are blessed to have you a part of this family. We are. We love how you have served so faithfully in our past. We are all one family on this mission together. And you know what? We disappoint each other along the ways, but I want you to know we love you and we are so glad that you are here. Right, for some reason, the, the, the church, according to Paul, says that it's this place where our, where our pride is tested. He says in verse three that, you know, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Rather, think of yourself with sober judgment. Right, anybody, anybody struggled to not think of yourself lately? Anybody? Yeah, like I, I've got three kids. I've never once sat any of them down and said, okay, I, I need to teach you how to act like the world revolves around you a little bit more. Never had that conversation, all right? Why? We are born instinctively with this nature to look out for ourselves. And so humility doesn't come naturally for us. All right, I love to be humble, I do. And I love to tell you when I'm humble. That's why I'm writing a book, Humility and How I Achieved It. You can buy it in our bookstore after this service. Not kidding. All right, being a part of the church will constantly call each of us to deny ourselves. All right, the Christians in the early church understood this. 
Following Jesus meant leaving behind whatever faith tradition that they had grown up in. You see, they were first-generation Christians. Joining the church was literally a decision to become a minority in their culture. It was a decision to be opposed. It was a decision to be put aside. It was risky. And so it meant running after this extreme ownership of being a part of this new mission that defined their life. The very first church was formed in the city of Jerusalem. One of Jesus' closest friends, a guy by the name of Simon Peter, stood up and and talked about who Jesus was. He basically said, hey, do you remember that Jesus guy who walked these streets over a month ago? Yeah, 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 I remember him. Yeah, he was the son of God. All right, he was the creator of God. Do you remember what you did to him? You hung him on a cross. He was the Messiah. He was the one that our moms and dads and our ancestors had been longing for for hundreds and hundreds of years, and yet you hung him on a cross. And, and Luke, who was there that day, said that, that whenever the people heard this, they immediately had this moment where they thought, what do we do? We, we didn't know. And, and so Peter basically said, hey, look, here's the good thing. God used that moment to reconcile you back to himself. And so you, you've, got to, you've got to receive it. So they said, well, what do we need to do next? And so Peter said, you got to repent. You got to rethink your life. You're headed this direction, make a U-turn, now face Jesus, and then be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And the Bible tells us that several thousand people said, I'm in on that deal. Sign me up. All right, baptism in that moment told the crowds, hey, I'm, I'm no longer in charge of my life. I, I don't have the answers. I, I'm broken. I, I'm, I'm a sinner. I, it's left up to me. I, I deserve to be cut off from my creator for forever, but I've surrendered my life to Jesus. My identity is now in him and him alone. And so when they were baptized, it also symbolized to the crowds that were there that day, hey, I am now a part of a new family. And once I get up out of this baptistry, I'm now taking extreme ownership of this family. I I don't know exactly what this is gonna look like, but all I know is that God is good, Jesus has saved me, and and this is something that I need. And so what we're gonna do just for the next few moments is we're gonna walk through several statements that describe what it really looks like for us to have extreme ownership in the church. The first statement to describe extreme ownership goes like this. I will sacrifice what I want for what others need. I'll sacrifice what I want for what others need. Now, can you imagine how backwards it would be if somehow the stages of life and maturity were backwards, were reversed in some way? I mean, let's just think about this for a second. Can you imagine bringing home your newborn from the hospital and uh, all of a sudden you say, okay, you turn to your newborn and say, "I, I need my allowance. Can you give me my allowance or, uh, hey, do you mind if I go and hang out with my friends tonight? I I promise to be back home by curfew. Or imagine later tonight when when you get home, your kindergartner is yelling through the house, hey, come on, it's it's dinner time. I've been working so hard to fix this meal all day long. You sit at the table and and then your kindergartner, your six-year-old just kind of pounds on the table and says, how many times have I told you no cell phones at the table? All right, my roof, my rules, all right? And then later that night, you run up to your six-year-old and, and you point to your husband and say, he, he has a dirty diaper, all right? <laughs> Some of you ladies, that's not all that difficult to imagine, right? <laughs> How backwards would that be? Now, we think in terms of maturity, according to, to age, right? But it, it doesn't always work out that way. Spiritual maturity isn't really necessarily defined to a specific age group, 
You see, our salvation is, is a gift. There's nothing we can do to deserve it or earn it, but it's also a growth. It's something that, that we have to learn to live out on a day-to-day basis. And so maturity looks like us becoming more and more others-focused rather than being self-centered. One thing I always tell couples before I marry them is that, you know what, if you are getting married to be happy, you are signing yourself up for a miserable life. You just are. I mean, your spouse ultimately can't give you the happiness that you are looking for. And, and you know what? If you wake up each day looking for how he's going to serve you, how she's going to meet your needs, how, you know, all of your dreams, all of your fantasies are going to become true in this person day in and day out. I'm telling you, you are going to end up in a place of disappointment. If that's how you are approaching marriage, you will end up very dissatisfied. The point of marriage is not happiness. And so if you're new to church, or maybe, maybe, maybe you're new to this whole following Jesus thing in general. In the most loving way I know how, I want you to know the church, the church is not about you. It's not about you. We, we do not exist to, to meet your every need or, or to fulfill your every desire or to fulfill your every dream. All right, if you are coming because the, the church makes you happy, it's just a matter of time until we disappoint you and let you down. Our Jesus didn't establish his church so, so that his followers would, would be happy. He never said that the point of his community was entertainment and, and fun. Now, now, we want to keep looking for ways to use things like that as tools to point more people to reach, all right, to, to reach more people. But once you're a part of the church, it's now about becoming holy like Jesus Christ. Paul said it like this in his letter to the church in Ephesus. He said, for you died to this life. And your real life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole entire world, you will share in all his glory. So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. You see, extreme ownership of the church means constantly denying ourselves. It's this call to repentance. What's repentance? It's about thinking differently and making a U-turn with your life. You're living for yourself. You're living for your dreams and and your success, your fortune, whatever that may be. But then you meet Jesus and all of a sudden, it's this constant turning away from those desires, from yourself onto who Christ is and and who he says is, is what's best for us. You see, we are called to this, not only because this is what glorifies God and this is what he calls us to do, but do you know why we are called to, to holiness? Why we are called to deny ourselves? Why we are called to extreme ownership? It's because our siblings need us. The people beside you need you. And so how are you looking out for the interest of others? When do you struggle the most with putting aside what you want for, for someone else's need? All right, if you're below the age of 40, let me just get really specific with this uh, for just a second, okay? One of the most legitimate criticisms, I think, of of our generation is that we know it all, we don't really listen, okay? We've read the most recent blog post, therefore we're an expert, we don't really need you, do you know what I'm talking about? And the younger generation, it's important, but honestly, as having talked with a lot of people who have been a part of our church for several decades, those in an older generation, they want to know, they want to know that, that we still need them. And you know what? You may not say it out loud and you may not know it, but we need, we need older men and women. And so when was the last time you, you simply thanked 
an older person for, for being faithful, for hanging on to God's word, for being faithful regardless of what life has thrown their way. When was the last time you just pulled somebody aside and said, hey, you know what? I, I know you've been a part of this church for, for several decades. Thank you. Thank you for maybe some of the small waves you've contributed and sacrificed in the past. And you see, our church is what it is today because of people in the past. You need men and women to come alongside you to show you what it looks like to, to be a man, what it looks like to be a, a wife, what it looks like to, to be a parent, right? There, there is experience and there is a, a well of, of wisdom and knowledge here that us who are younger need, need to take advantage of. And I gotta tell you, I, one of the biggest mistakes I think I've made so far in leading our churches, I have not listened and, and loved and and taking the needed time to, to be with some of the older people in our church to just, to just learn, and that's on me. But I gotta tell you, I love being a part of some of the conversations that are happening lately. We're, we're trying to make some, some shifts and changes. Two weeks ago, I'll give you an example of this. Two weeks ago, I went out to eat with a good buddy of mine, Marvin Weber. Those of you who've been a part of Crossroads might know who Marvin Weber is. He's in his mid-80s, and he just loves life. And I gotta tell you, I learned so much from Marvin Weber. And so two weeks ago, we had lunch together at Golden Corral, all right? Besides being the youngest person there by about 50 years, It was great, and I gotta tell you, I walked away thinking, man, I, I wanna be like Marvin when I'm older. Who's your Marvin Weber? Who are, who are you serving? Here, here's the next statement of extreme ownership. It goes like this, I will contribute to the best of my ability. All right, when we've been talking a lot about this lately, whether you know it or not, God has put certain gifts and abilities in you for a reason. Look again at verse four. Paul said, for just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. Paul's saying that, that God asks some of us to do certain things that others of us can't do. It, it's impossible for all of us to do everything, but it is possible for all of us to at least do something. And so if you're a Christian and you've been attending here for a month or more, it, it's time for you to contribute. This family called Crossroads needs you. You see, contributing to the best of your ability means moving from seeing yourself as a guest to seeing yourself as a host. One thing that we're really passionate about here at Crossroads is welcoming guests, welcoming new people, serving them and treating them well. It's why the closest parking spots are reserved for, for guests. We go out of our way to welcome guests in our service. We try to communicate in a way that if you're new here, you don't get lost in what we're saying. You can understand. Our job is to eliminate as many unnecessary obstacles and, and any kind of unnecessary resistance to people who, who crawl in here looking to find Jesus. But you know what? If you're a believer and you've been hanging around here for a while and you still want some of these guest privileges, we need you to start seeing yourself as a host. You see, if you invite me over to, to your house, you're probably gonna welcome me, be prepared to welcome me a little bit early. You're gonna make a meal for me. You're gonna have things prepared in advance for me. There is a difference between being a guest and, and being a, a host, right? And my concern is that that some of us, we, we're hanging out in this whole guest mentality for a little bit, for a little bit too long. Practically, this might mean that you, know, you, you approach church when you come on the weekends and the only thing on your mind is, man, how can I get that closest parking spot? You know what I'm saying? Yet, if you're physically able, if you don't have young children, if you're not new around here and, and that is your purpose, then that, 
to find the closest parking spot, it might mean that you need to move to seeing yourself more as a host. This is about walking through our atrium at Newburgh and at West. And if there's a piece of paper or a piece of trash on the floor, pick it up. Why? Because this is your family. You are hosting us. Or you, you, you are hosting more and more guests. And I firmly believe that God will not entrust more guests with us unless we learn to be more and better hosts because God won't entrust more people to us unless we are prepared to care for them. Judy McBrien uh, has been a part of our church for a long time. I love Judy. I love the way that she serves. She has served in different capacities over the years. And in between our two services on Sunday morning here at Newburgh, I love to, to watch her just walk around the atrium. She's usually wearing a really classy outfit and she's got latex gloves on. Do you, do you, know, what, do you know what Judy does every single week? She simply picks up the trash and she'll clean the restroom and she'll do things behind the scenes that, honestly, she, she never gets credit for. What, why, why, did, why does Judy do this? I asked her last week, and she said, well, you know, this, this is just my way to contribute, because Crossroads has meant so much to me. You, you, I love what God is doing here, and, and I don't know about you, but when was the last time you walked into a bathroom and, and were thankful that it was clean? Probably, probably been a while. Yeah, we notice when a bathroom is messy and, and dirty, it doesn't happen by accident. It's, it's people like Judy who, who step up and say, this is my family. I, I want to be a host. I, I want to welcome more and more people into the kingdom of God. We, we, we need more Judy McBrien's here. You've got this opportunity right before you. Three weeks from now, we are having nine services between our Newburgh and West Campus on Easter weekend, okay? Now, you need to know that we are gonna go a little bit lower on the production side of things so that we can be more intentional about establishing relationships and welcoming the guests that are gonna be on our campus for the very first time, okay? No other weekend throughout the year will our campuses be, full, be, be more full of, of people who are new than on Easter weekend. And so you know what? God will not entrust to us guests that we are not prepared to host. And, and so will you, will you host with us? Will you sign up to serve on Easter weekend? And maybe you think, well, I don't, I don't know, or how do I do that? Simply go to our website, cccgo.com forward slash Easter. Okay, pull out your phone. You can find it on your app. We need you to be a part of what God is gonna do on Easter weekend. It's gonna be incredible. You know what? We really believe that this is gonna be a significant turning point for many people in our community who show up here. The question is, are you gonna be a part of what God's gonna do? Do you wanna take advantage of this opportunity? Let's wrap things up. Here's the last statement that defines extreme ownership. I will be the church to everyone around me. I'll be the church to everyone around me. All right, one of the biggest adjustments the Jews turning to Christ had to make in the first century was realizing that, that God's presence had been made available to everyone everywhere, okay? When Jesus said, it is finished, right before he died on the cross, an eyewitness by the name of Matthew said that this really interesting, tedious detail happened the moment Jesus died. Take it. Take a look, Matthew 27. At that moment, when Jesus died, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, why is it significant that the curtain was torn from top to bottom? What's that all about? Well, you see, behind this curtain represented the holy presence of the creator God. The Jewish people referred to that place as the holy of holies. All right, the, that temple was the only place where you could worship the Lord, but you know what? 
Matthew said that the temple had been, that the curtain had been torn in two. He says that it tore from top to bottom. Now, had it been torn from maybe the bottom to the top, skeptics would have said, well, it was Jesus' followers that did it, or it was mankind that, that tore the temple curtain. But that's not what happened. It tore from top to bottom because it was an intentional act of God. You see, when Jesus stepped foot in my place and he stepped foot in your place, when he hung on the cross and he died, he was our substitute. In that moment, he gave us direct access to the Holy Spirit presence of God, wherever we are, no matter where we live, regardless of what we are doing, we have access to the presence of God. It is unlimited. That's what his death qualified us for. His death qualified everyone everywhere to approach him with the utmost confidence. Now this, this is huge. All right, since one of the core practices of worship back then was animal sacrifice, it had been replaced with, with something far more sufficient, and that is the essence of what changed here in this moment. And so for the Jewish people who had turned to Jesus, that meant that they didn't have to go through any more rituals. That meant no more sacrifices, no more chants, no more going through a high priest, no more saying a specific prayer just to get God's attention, no more religion, no more shame, no more guilt, no more bondage, no, no more slavery, no more unnecessary obstacles. Why? Because the temple curtain had been tur- torn in two. from top to bottom. From this moment forward, the presence of God now can reside and take up residence inside every follower of Jesus. The Holy Spirit, the presence of God, takes up residence in all of of us who who have leaned our life on Jesus and said, yeah, I, I, I trust you. And so we get to be living sacrifices at church, at home, in the office, at the factory, at the garage, on the plane, or as we walk through our neighborhoods. Why? The temple curtain was torn. And so let me say it like this to all the Christians in here for just a second. I don't want you to miss this. The the temple curtain was torn. All right, that means this. That the closest some people in your life may be to the presence of God is determined by your proximity to them. The church isn't just something that that you attend. It's not just about singing songs when you get together, learning about Jesus. No, you are the the church. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth, according to what Jesus said. And and a light doesn't really do much good if if it's hidden. Salt doesn't do much good if it loses its, its saltiness. And so this reality calls us to take extreme ownership of this mission, no matter who we are, no matter where we live, no matter what we are doing. I visited with uh, Jim Holloway of our church recently. Jim's in his 90s and he's in a retirement home right now and his health isn't good. And and when I walked in to to visit with him, he was telling me about just what he's been struggling with and what he's been battling with, but he still had a smile on his face. He, He still just had so much joy regardless of his circumstances and he said, you know, I just can't wait to be in heaven one day. I, I hope that day comes sooner than later. You know, I have more friends up there than I do down here. <laughs> he said, but every day that I wake up, I know that I have a mission and I have a purpose for my life. And, and so I said, well, Jim, what, what's that? He said, well, as long as I am here, my job and my mission is to tell as many people about who Jesus Christ is as possible. I, I am the church, he said. That comes from somebody who understands that that temple curtain ha- has been torn. 
So we're going to end a little bit differently. I've asked all of our worship leaders at both campuses to come out and end with this song that we learned just a few minutes ago called Reckless Love. Here's why I want us to end like this. I don't know who's on your mind to bring to Easter. I don't know who's going to come with you. But chances are you've got some people in your life that are close to you but maybe far from God that don't have a church home. Maybe this is a daughter. This, this is a stepson. Maybe this is your husband. This is your wife. Maybe this is your boss. This is a, your co or neighbor. I, I don't know who that is, okay? I know some of us are a little bit nervous about making that invitation because you, you don't want to experience rejection. But I'm here to say that, that I think God is at work in their life in more ways than you're even aware of. God, God is actually working on their hearts, perhaps for that moment when you extend the invitation to Easter to them, which could possibly be the turning point that they have been looking for. All right, so here's what we're going to do. This song is going to be sung. And ju- just imagine that the person you want to come to Easter with you shows up. And when this song is sung in one of our nine services at both campuses, what would it be like? What would it be like if if when this song is sung, you turn over and you look at your your son, you look at your husband, you, you look at your stepdad, and that person is looking at the lyrics on the screen and you can tell, something significant is happening. It's like, it's like the words are becoming reality for them in their life. And, and what if in that moment, the, the ever present, the never ending love of God is becoming real to them? What, what would that be like? Let's pray. God, your love is never ending. Your love is ever changing and, and your love calls us to repentance. Your, call, your, your love calls us to take the focus off ourselves, to deny ourselves and, and to look to you. And your love calls us to take extreme ownership of this messy thing called the church. And God, we, we have a bunch of people in our life. We have a bunch of people in our life that they're, they're closest to your presence may be our proximity to them. And, and so God, would, would you just prepare them for Easter? Would you prepare them to encounter your love in a way that we never have before? And would you give all of us the boldness to go out and be the church where we work, where we live, where we work out, where we eat? Because God, we have the presence of you living inside us. That, that is our job, to be the light in the midst of darkness. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.